0: On February 17, 1929, old Edward Lawrence Doheny, the king of America's oil fields, was awakened from his golden slumbers in his legendary mansion at Chester Place, near downtown LA. Something horrible had happened to his only child, Ned Doheny, and he needed to hurry, quick. E.L. rushed across town to Beverly Hills, to his son's palatial estate known as Greystone for its dark, rocky exterior. The old man ran down the mansion, shouted main foyer and refused to heed the advice of family members to not go to the room containing Ned's body. According to the Los Angeles Times, E.L. was adamant. No, I must see Ned, he said with a bowed head as he walked down the hall that led from the front entrance to the chamber where his son's body lay. Yes, it is Ned after all. I had hoped against hope there was some mistake. He staggered slightly, and then, with a slow tread, passed close to the head of his son's murderer, who lay in the hall close to the door of the chamber, and walked into the room. I'm Hadley Mears, and this is Underbelly LA. The story of Edward Lawrence Doheny is one of Wild West legend. The son of poor Irish immigrants, Doheny spent his early adulthood kicking around the rough and tumble mining towns of the West, searching for gold and other precious metals. By 1982, he was in his late 30s, broke, with a troubled wife named Carrie and a sickly daughter who would die that year. But sadness over his personal life was matched by sudden profound success. That fall, he struck liquid gold when on a hunch he dug his first oil well in the sticky tar fields of Los Angeles. He was further overjoyed when on November 6, 1893, Carey gave birth to a son, E.L. Doheny Jr., who would be known as Ned to the family. Doheny viewed Ned as a second chance. According to Doheny biographer Margaret Leslie Davis, author of Dark Side of Fortune, the definitive account of E.L.'s life, Doheny swore that he would achieve great wealth to provide a secure life for the boy. He made good on his oath. Over the next two decades, Doheny would become wealthy beyond his wildest dreams. In addition to virtually controlling the oil markets in California, he would make even more money in Mexico, where he drilled some of the most productive oil wells in the world. E.L. lived apart from Carrie and Ned, who resided in san francisco the couple finally divorced in 1899 el soon married estelle betzold a telephone operator whom he had fallen in love with over the phone lines carrie always fragile killed herself soon after by ingesting battery acid and ned came to live with el and his new wife estelle estelle took the job of raising ned seriously and the pudgy boy was soon very attached to her. The two became close, playing games in their big mansion on Chester Place, near downtown L.A., while E.L. was often away, overseeing his kingdom of oil. In one particularly plaintive letter, Estelle wrote to her faraway husband. Ned said to me at the dinner table, "'Mama, we could be awfully happy if we were poor, couldn't we?' I asked him, "'Dear, dear little tot, why?' He said, because Papa wouldn't go away so often. Ned was educated at private Catholic schools and spent a year at Stanford before graduating from USC. He grew into a spoiled, easygoing, funny and handsome man with a heart of gold who idolized his father and adored his stepmother. In 1913, while courting his future wife, Lucy Smith, he met a working-class young man named Theodore Hugh Plunkett. Hugh worked at Lucy's family's gas station near Chester Place. They became great friends, and soon Hugh was one of the Doheny's mini-servants, acting as chauffeur for the entire Doheny family. Both young men served in the Great War, an experience that bonded them closer together. When they returned from service, Hugh acted as Ned's personal secretary, often traveling with him as he became more involved with his father's business. But according to attorney Frederick R. Kellogg, although Hugh acted as secretary to Ned, their relationship was more than that of friends. No one ever said it outright that they were lovers, but it was often insinuated. Another associate, Dr. E.C. Fishball, put it more succinctly. They were like brothers. But the two men were brothers with wildly different bank accounts. Upon their marriage, Ned and Lucy were presented with a mansion adjacent to the elder Doheny's Chester Place Castle, while Hugh and his wife, Harriet, lived in modest accommodations. The younger Dohenys were L.A.'s elite darlings in the rarefied aristocracy of blue-blooded, non-movie-making California elites. Their exploits were often the lead story on society pages, whether sailing on the family yacht or attending a dinner party or a costume ball. They lived a life of refined excess, bankrolled by the Doheny Millions and Ned's absent father. But life for Ned Doheny was not all play and no work. In November 1921, Ned and Hugh checked into a suite at the Plaza Hotel in New York City. On the 30th, Ned walked into the New York banking house of Blair & Company. He withdrew $100,000 from a banking account he shared with his wife Lucy and put the bills in a small black bag. He and Hugh then traveled to Washington, D.C., where they met with Albert Fall, the Secretary of the Interior for the notoriously corrupt Harding administration at the Wardman Park Hotel. Ned handed over the money to Fall, a friend of his father, from the rough and tumbling mining days. Fall handed Ned a promissory note guaranteeing future repayment. Within a month, Doheny Sr. had deposited $100,000 back into Ned and Lucy's account. This simple transaction would turn Ned and Hugh's world upside down. E.L. Doheny was soon awarded the contract for the Elks Hill Naval Petroleum Reserve in Kern County, California. The exchange of money, which Doheny would call a loan to an old friend and numerous government officials would call a bribe, was part of the infamous Teapot Dome scandal, which would consume the rest of the 1920s. In 1924, Albert Fall, a fellow oilman named Harry F. Sinclair, and E.L. Doheny would all be charged with conspiracy to defraud the United States. At a grand jury hearing in D.C. in May, Ned refused to answer any questions regarding his role in the delivery, although he testified that neither he nor his father had done anything wrong. Yale was acquitted in December 1926, with Estelle, Ned, and Lucy by his side. However, due to endless political duels in Washington, E.L. would be soon charged again, this time with bribery. In the midst of this chaos, E.L. decided to present Ned, Lucy, and their five children with an extraordinary gift. Or maybe it was more of a thank you for services rendered in court. Built on 429 acres overlooking the still-sleepy village of Beverly Hills, right above Sunset Boulevard, Greystone was designed by Gordon Kaufman, a prominent architect whose work included the Hoover Dam and the Los Angeles Times building. Begun in 1927, the 55-room mansion included a bowling alley with a hidden bar, a main hall of checkered Carrera marble, a personal switchboard, secret passageways, and grand rooms filled with European antiques. The exquisite grounds included an 80-foot waterfall, which could be turned on with a switch, stables, a swimming pool, a kennel, and the still awe-inspiring Cypress Lane, designed by the landscape architect, Paul Thine. According to Thine's main designer, Emil Kuhl, The sky was the limit. I would ask Mr. Thine what the client might want. Give them everything, was the reply. Greystone was to be Ned and Lucy's future home, but it was Hugh who oversaw its construction. Ned was frequently in Washington, supporting his father through the Teapot Dome scandal. Another Doheny employee later told the Los Angeles Times. Hugh often signed checks for Mr. Doheny, totaling hundreds of thousands of dollars. He attended to most of the details of the new home, and actually paid the contractor's bills with checks made out in Mr. Doheny's name. In the fall of 1928, as Greystone was nearing completion, the Doheny faithful claimed that the once quiet, even-tempered Hugh was beginning to unravel. Some blamed trouble with his teeth, others a dependence on sleeping pills, the breakdown of his marriage, or other unknown problems. What no one, including the LA Times, mentioned afterwards was that Ned and Hugh had been called to testify again in the upcoming bribery trials of Albert Fall and E.L. Doheny. And although Ned had been assured immunity, Hugh, a mere servant, had not. Against this tense backdrop, the Doheny clan moved into Greystone before Thanksgiving. According to Curbed LA's Tess Barker, Ned used the solarium's large window, which faced out to the hills on the other side of the estate, as a perching point from which to hunt animals in his backyard. When the urge to kill for sport struck him, he would call upon one of his servants to release some of his pre-stocked game. He would eventually shoot the animals from the comfort of the great indoors, and then send a servant to fetch the carcass and bring it to the gunroom adjoining the kitchen for preparation. Ned and Lucy celebrated their first holiday season in their new home, with a 30-foot Christmas tree adorned with piles of presents. They hosted a party featuring 100 couples dancing to Christmas songs played by an orchestra sitting in a special gallery above the mansion's main ballroom. But the season's good cheer did not extend to everyone in the Doheny household. On Christmas Eve, Hugh supposedly suffered a complete nervous breakdown and was put in the care of the family physician, Dr. Ernest Clyde Fishball. By February, the Doheny Circle claimed Hugh was completely unhinged. According to Dr. Fishbaugh, on the afternoon of February 16th, he, Ned, and Lucy confronted Hugh at Greystone. They urged him to take a rest at a sanitarium. Was this to get him mental help or to exempt him from testifying at the upcoming trial? Or maybe it was both. We will never know. Whatever the case, the doctor claimed that Hugh refused, He simply sat there, almost shaking at times, hands clenched. He said he would come out of it all right. He would not. According to the official story propagated by the Dohenies, in the early evening of February 16, 1929, Ned and Lucy went to visit Hugh in his apartment, again urging him to get help. During the visit, Ned uttered some impulsive remarks that upset Hugh. Ned and Lucy left Hugh in a huff and went to the theater. They returned to Greystone later that night. As they were getting ready for bed, Hugh called. He was at the garage at the gates of Greystone and said he wanted to come to the mansion. Lucy implored him not to. A little while later, Hugh led himself into the main house with his pass key. Ned found him in the guest bedroom he often slept in and sat down to talk with his troubled friend. An hour or so passed, and the two men had drinks and smoked cigarettes. According to Dr. Fishbaugh, who was also at the theater that night, this meeting between longtime friends soon turned deadly. He recalled: "I received a call at the Hollywood Playhouse from my maid at 10:30 pm and was told to go to the Doheny home immediately. Upon my arrival there, one of the watchmen, whose name I do not know, let me into the house. As I entered, Mrs. Doheny was standing in the middle of the hallway, approximately eight feet back from the door, and greeted me. She said her husband was in a guest room on the first floor to the left of the hall, leading from the front entrance. Both Mrs. Doheny and I started down the hall side by side. A door which partitions the hall was slightly ajar, and I saw Hugh Plunkett walking towards it. "'You stay out of here,' he shouted at me, and slammed the door shut. "'I then heard a shot. "'You go back,' I told Mrs. Doheny, "'and she returned to the living room, "'which was about 75 feet away from the guest room. "'I pushed the door open and saw Plunkett lying on his face "'opposite the door to the bedroom, where I later found Mr. Doheny. "'Plunkett, to the best of my recollection, was fully clothed. "'The door to the bedroom was open,' and when I looked in, I saw Mr. Doheny lying on his back. A chair overturned between him and the bed. Both men had been shot in the head, and both were allegedly dead. Frantic calls went out to E.L., to Lucy's brothers, to the D.A.'s office, and finally, a couple hours later, to the Beverly Hills police. The ensuing, if brief, media storm cast Ned as a hero who had died the finest kind of death trying to help a troubled friend. But many in local law enforcement, including forensic investigator Leslie White, doubted the Pat's story of murder-suicide. While photographing and processing the scene, White found a smoldering cigarette in Hugh's fingertips, a curious thing for a man who had just killed his best friend and was about to kill himself. The gun used in the murder lay under Hugh's body, still warm. Longtime Doheny employee, Dr. Fishbow, the main mouthpiece for the family, was called in several lies, including withholding the fact that Ned had been alive when the doctor burst into the room, breathing, although already unconscious. Leslie White also observed that it appeared that Ned had been shot at very close range, while it seemed that Hugh had not. The city of Los Angeles was titillated by this tragedy of titans. Yale's private security detail guarded Greystone, determined to keep the media and the masses away. Ned's funeral at St. Vincent's, the beautiful church funded solely by his parents, was filled to capacity. Hundreds stood outside the church, held back by a special detail of traffic officers. Ned was buried at Forest Lawn, in the magnificent temple of St. Sabina which once contained the bones of an Italian saint of the second century. A day later, Hugh was buried only 100 feet away from Ned. Both Hugh's brother and sister collapsed at the graveside. Lucy Doheny sent a huge floral arrangement to his funeral, and two of her brothers served as pallbearers. After the huge explosion of coverage in the local papers, all reporting of the murder ceased within three days. And after promising a sweeping investigation, District Attorney Byrne Fitz proclaimed there would be no inquest and officially closed the investigation, placing all the blame on Hugh Plunkett's shoulders. Old E.L. Doheny was eventually acquitted of his bribery charge, but his heart had been broken. Rumors of a love affair between the two men, of a cover-up and of bribes, linger to this day. A reporter at the Los Angeles Times summed up the whole saga within 48 hours of the tragedy, aware that this was a story already forever muddled by power and pride. What transpired in the bedroom of that long, rambling mansion, in its woodland setting, halfway up the side of the Beverly Hills mountainside, may never be known. Both Doheny and Plunkett are dead. Lucy stayed at Greystone with her five children, and life began again. She married an investment dealer, Lee Batson, in 1932, in front of the living room of a fireplace at Greystone. Three years later, old E.L. died, still rich, still broken from his only child's mysterious demise. Despite its horrific beginnings, Greystone became a happy place, filled with opulent parties and children scurrying across the expanse of grounds, or spraying away with a fire extinguisher in the attic gymnasium. Lucy and Lee were regulars on the social scene, dancing at jet-set balls and hosting real European aristocracy at Greystone. Lucy was also heavily involved with charity work, and her daughter Lucy Estelle, called Dickie Dell was one of the loveliest and most popular debutantes of the 1930s. Her engagement, reported on breathlessly in the L.A. Times, was during a dinner party at Greystone in 1936 and was straight out of a Noel Coward play. Guests were informed of the betrothal when each was served a decorated plate on which was an oyster shell containing a large pearl. Under the shell was a gold card with the engraving... The pearls of wisdom within these shells predict for Van and Dickie wedding bells. The bride-to-be found in her shell a solitaire diamond engagement ring. An orchestra played for dancing, and gaiety continued until late, with other amusements afforded guests. After the children were grown, Lucy and Lee found the giant estate burdensome and too large. Lucy sold it in 1959. In 1965, Greystone was bought by the city of Beverly Hills. It became an increasingly popular filming location, so it was fitting when the American Film Institute leased it from the city from 1969 to 1982. It is now a public park and used for private functions. It continues to be a popular filming location, and numerous movies have shot scenes there. These include The Holiday, The Bodyguard, The Witches of Eastwick, and fittingly, There Will Be Blood, based on Upton Sinclair's 1927 novel, Oil, which many say was inspired by the elder Doheny's rise to power. All hints as to what happened have vanished with the decades. The Doheny family never gave interviews, or indeed talked about that terrible night in public ever again. Perhaps it's for the best. Sometimes it is better not to know, to give it up to the poor souls in purgatory, as we say in the South. Or as Hugh Plunkett's preacher put it during his eulogy many moons ago, We know so little about another, not a 90th part. In a moment of fever and excitement, this man was not himself and his moment came. We leave him in God's keeping. I'm Hadley Mears, and you can follow me on Twitter at H-A-D-L-E-Y-M-E-A-R-E-S. You can follow Underbelly LA at Underbelly LA. We're also on Facebook, just search Underbelly LA. Listen to all future episodes of this podcast by going to UnderbellyLA.com, and you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and anywhere else you'd normally find a podcast. Every episode of this show is researched, written, and read by me, Hadley Mears. This episode is based on an article I wrote that originally appeared on KCET. Check it out. The show is produced by Drew Mackey and edited by Mika Grimm. Underbelly Alley is a Tablecakes podcast. Tablecakes is a Los Angeles-based, woman-owned podcast company. And if you want to learn about other shows on this network, go to tablecakes.com. If you want to support Underbelly Alley, check out our digital tip jar at patreon.com slash underbelly Thanks for joining us on this episode of Underbelly Alley. Join us next week as we delve into the mystery of the disappearance of Dorothy Lee Gordon. A Table Cakes production.